Amen. Anybody glad to be in God's house today? Amen. I got a couple of you anyhow. Uh, Today I'm calling today as our tabernacle experience. Israel wandered in the desert where it's really hot and and they worship God and we're going to do that today. Um, Our AC is not working as well as it could be. Uh, I cranked the sucker down to 73 yesterday morning and it hopes that we'd be good. And it's a little bit, it's a little bit warm. Uh, Feel free, to, feel free to fan yourself, to fan your neighbor. Um, but I, I tell you, here, here, here's what I know. But I got to hit my timer on my thing. Or we'll be here all day. Hold on here. This is very professional of me right here. All right. Okay, cool. Um, I, I know that when things like this happen, little minor distractions. And I know the children's wings, computers crashed. It's because God has something to say today, and he wants us to be distracted, right? No, I said God again, didn't I? You know, God has something to say today. Back back up, man, I'm just all over the place. And the praise team, I said, all this stuff happened um, because of God. God calls this stuff, and I meant to say Satan did this to distract us, and so my mind's confused a little bit today. But what I'm trying to say is God has something to say. And uh, we're not going to let a little bit of uh, warmth distract us. And I got a fan blowing on me that feels pretty good right now. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so we're, we're in this series, and it's an extremely important one. It's called Becoming the Church He Intended. And, and so far in this series, we've seen that uh, the church that Jesus intended is, is not just a, a, a bunch of people meeting in, in a room every week, but we see that the church Jesus intended is his body. It is his, his bride. The church Jesus intended is his family, is his flock. The church Jesus intended is, is God's temple, is the promised messianic kingdom. The, the church that Jesus intended is the called out ones, called out from the world to be different than the world, to go back into the world, to change the world. And the church Jesus intended is actually the hope of the world. And the church that Jesus intended is made up of people who have died to and denied daily themselves. Uh, crucified followers, not, not fans, who are fully devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayer. And, and, and brothers and sisters, I, I am absolutely convinced that when you and I are fully devoted devoted to those four things, we'll experience what the church in Acts chapter 2 experienced. Everyone will be filled with awe and wonder. God will move among us in mighty and powerful ways. We'll experience radical and authentic community with each other. And God will add to our number daily those who are being saved. Like, come on, can you you picture it? Can you you feel it? Do, 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 Do you want it? And I'm equally convinced that if we do not devote ourselves to those four things, we'll never experience what the Acts 2 church experienced. And instead, we'll just be spinning our wheels, treading water, having a minimal, if any, impact for the kingdom. In fact, I was talking to somebody this week about how if we want to see more people walk through the doors of this building, I mean, would anybody like to see that? That 
What we need to pray for is not for more people to walk through the doors of this building. What we need to pray for is for a greater devotion among us who are already here. Because any growth that is fueled by anything other than devotion will quickly fade away. Now in Acts chapter 2, we read about the commitment that those 3,000 accepted Peter's message and were baptized, what they were committed to, their devotion. They voted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and to the fellowship and to prayer. And the results, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, like small groups, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. Yeah, what we need is, is, is greater devotion. I had lunch with a, a friend on Friday at Martin's Grill. I got me a, a po' boy. Anybody have one of those things? Those shrimp suckers? They, they are good. I'm just telling you. And they make a good one at Martin's if you like po' boys. And, you know, he attends Maple Grove and he, he serves at Maple Grove. And we were talking about this very thing, about how if we are really devoted to those four things, that everything else will kind of just take care of itself. I mean, seriously, think about it. If someone is, is devoted to reading God's Word and studying God's Word, and if they're devoted to, to submitting to that Word and living out that Word, and if someone is devoted to regularly being on their knees in the presence of and crying out to the sovereign King of the universe for the spread of the Word and advancement of His kingdom, and, and if they're living in authentic Christian community, sharing life together, pursuing God together, investing in others together, and if when they break the bread, if when they take communion, they, they remember Jesus, remember how he lived, remember how he died, remember why he died, remember what he said, remember the cross and what it actually cost the Father and the Son. I mean, seriously, think about it. With someone living and following Jesus like that, with someone devoted like that have to be coerced to Love their neighbor, have to be coerced to, and told to share their faith, to forgive those who hurt them, to care for the orphan and widow, to demonstrate compassion to the least of these, to live in authentic community, to serve in the church, to give their tithe and offerings to the church. Now, the guy I had lunch with, he's that kind of devoted guy, you know, you know, he's devoted from inside, right? When you're devoted from inside with the relationship with Jesus, it stays no matter the cost, right? And, and, and uh, two examples he did recently just showed me how devoted this guy is. Like, like one was when I called him on a Saturday when we had to go to um, a, a, a quick trip for a family emergency, <coughs> excuse me, in Indiana. And, and I, I needed some, we needed someone to fill in for one of Laurie's classes back there. I sent out a a mass text to 20 people, he responded in 20 seconds. I said, yeah, I'll fill in. Glad to. Anytime you need me, right? Because this is kind of what you do. Now, this morning, I, I want to pack a conversation that I'm calling Not So Fast. 
Turn to the person to your right and left and say, not so fast. Not so fast. Not so fast. And the reason I'm calling this not so fast is because yesterday morning, you know, I was wrapping up the conversation I've been working on all week, and I kind of heard God, and moving on to the next discussion in our series, and I, I really felt God say to me, hold on, Steve, not so fast. I, I don't want you to move on quite yet. And if you're here last week, you know that we talked about how we're not to merely be fans of Jesus and simply admire him, but that we are to be crucified followers. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, right? I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Not so fast. And you remember this quote from last week. Uh, Jesus was never interested in having fans. When he defines what kind of relationship he wants, right? And, and Jesus gets to do the DTR, right? <laughs> he gets to determine the relationship. Enthusiastic admirer isn't an option. My concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. And every week, all the fans come to the stadium where they cheer for Jesus, but have no interest in truly following him. Okay, not so fast. Do you, do you agree with that last statement? Do you think that happens, that there's people who come in to rooms like this and cheer for Jesus, but really have no intention of following him? The quote continued, the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. Not so fast. Do you agree with that statement? But like, like do, you, do you think that's the biggest threat to the church? I do, because it, that's not what the church is, right? Uh, the church is people who are radically following after Jesus, so if it's full of people who are not following after Jesus, it's not, it's not even the church to begin with. You see, if we're not following Jesus, we're not a disciple of Jesus, And what about that last part? You know, they want to be close enough to Jesus, right? But not so close that he requires anything of them. They want the benefits, right? We want the love, we want the grace, we want the mercy, we want the promise of heaven, but not so close that Jesus might require something from them. You see, the truth is, according to Jesus, we cannot and we are not following him unless we die to ourselves. We cannot and we are not following Jesus unless we die to ourselves. Get it? Good. And have you died to yourself? And in what ways have you died to yourself? And in what ways do you still need to die to yourself? Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus wanted and wants people to follow him. He called and calls people to follow him. But Jesus made it clear to the people in the first century and to us in the 21st century that when we do follow him, there will be a cost and that we must die. The great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was 
in a concentration camp and eventually hung, said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, last Sunday, at the end of the message, I, I challenged everybody to do two things. It's always a challenge to actually do the two things that I challenge everybody else to do, right? Uh, and, and those two things are, number one, to, you know, to read Luke 9 and Luke 14 for yourselves and kind of kind of meditate on it and see what Jesus says with his own words about what it means for you to follow him. And the other thing was kind of, you know, kind of in your mind, imagine yourself going to Starbucks and you, if you're a visitor, you got your Starbucks card, right? And, and that you're sitting with Jesus and you're handing Jesus a list of all the ways that following him has cost you. Did you do that? I, I did. I, I made a list. Okay, not so fast. Uh, let's take a moment and, and reflect on that question. Yeah. You don't have to write anything down, but in your heart and mind, with Jesus across the table from you, what costs have I paid to follow Jesus? Think about it. Only you can answer it. Now, several things stuck out to me as I, I read my list, um, wrote my list, is that the cost that I have paid, they just pale in comparison to the cost paid by so many of my brothers and sisters around the world who suffer very real, very intense and persecution for their faith. In the book, Letters to the Church, I got a copy, another copy, anybody want a copy I hand one up fast. I think I can do this, right? I was watching cornhole tournament yesterday. World Championship of cornhole, believe it or not. Okay. It's crazy stuff. I didn't know they even had it. All right. Uh, listen to this, what he writes in this book. Letters of Church. It's a chapter called Crucified. The more I study the Gospels, the more I am convinced that those of us who live in the United States have a warped view of what it means to be a Christian. It is for this reason that we are in the state that we are in. A warped view of Christianity can result only in a warped church. But if, what if we started over? What if we bulldoze what we currently call church and started over with actual Christians? A believer from a house church in Iran who can't be named for obvious reasons explained that people who want to join the church have to sign a written statement agreeing to lose their property, be thrown in jail, and be martyred for their faith. Uh, many Christians are arrested in Iran and either are executed or in prison for years. Fellowship looks a lot different when the church consists of those who have a biblical understanding of Christianity. Interestingly, some research shows that Iran has the fastest growing evangelical population in the world. When a friend of mine came back from visiting the church in Iraq, I asked him what the biggest difference was between our church and the church in Iraq. He said, what we call sanctification, they call prerequisite. In other words, we act as though surrender is a lifelong process where we slowly decide whether or not we will give up certain things to God. Meanwhile, the believers in Iraq teach the way of, of Jesus taught. They're required to count the cost of running everything up front. Otherwise, they cannot join the church. Years ago, I was in China and visited an underground church gathering where I asked them about the persecution. And each person who stood up started sharing stories about persecution he or she had endured. 
Sometimes they had to hide in the walls because the government officials were coming. Some of them had even run from gunshots, but I wish you could hear the way they were sharing. Everyone was just laughing like it was a party. It sounded completely insane to me hearing them laugh about being shot at. But it didn't faze them because they just expected it. And in their prayers, they were screaming out to God to take them to the most dangerous places. I want to suffer for you. I don't want to go to a safe place. I don't. Please. I want to be counted worthy to die in your name. That's the way they prayed. If you have a group like that, how are you going to stop them? That's the way the church is supposed to be. An unstoppable force ready to take a hit and go right back in to the battle. So my list kind of struck me like, okay, my list pales in comparison. Another thing that struck me is that some of my greater costs are like in my rearview mirror. <laughs> you know, I mean, I paid them. And I can look back, sometimes I look back, well, you know, 1987, but just 32 years ago, Steve, you know. Well, I left my career in the Navy to follow my call into ministry. Okay, that's good. Not a bad thing. But what have you done for me lately? What have you paid for me lately? Third, what struck me is when I began to write down just some of what I gain from following Christ. My sins are forgiven. My debt is paid. I'm no longer under God's wrath. His spirit comes to live inside of me. I have access to the very throne room of God. I have God's love, mercy, and grace poured, poured out on me. And I've had some of the greatest relationships and friendships that I could ever imagine having. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I just made the, the deal of the century. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution, yet you're going to, there's going to be a cost. Age will come eternal life. Now let's do that not so fast thing with Luke chapter 9 and 14. Luke chapter 9, beginning around verse 23. Then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, and you guys are here today in this room, so I, I, I'm assuming that's all of us in this room. You, what's that next word? Must. What does must mean? Must, right? Must. The Greek word, Greek word for must means must. Not Think about it, kind of, when it's convenient or comfortable. You must turn from your selfish ways. Got any? I do. Take up your cross daily and follow me. In other words, go where I go, do what I did, be who I was, love as I love, sacrifice as I sacrificed. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for me and for the sake of, of the gospel, you, you will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world and Yet lose or forfeit your very self. Okay, not so fast. Those, those last six words, lose or forfeit their very self. That seems like a pretty high cost to pay for not following Jesus in his way of self-denial and cross-bearing. See, what Jesus is saying, you know what? You're going to lose you. You're going to lose you. You're going to lose the you that 
you were meant to be. And Luke 9 ends with Jesus encountering a bunch of people who were really only interested in being fans. As they were traveling on the road, verse 57 of Luke 9, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. All right, guy, join our church. Get your coffee mug, right? We want you, right? I'm here. And Jesus like, dude, come on, chill a little bit. Jesus, this guy's pretty excited. That's not, Jesus told him foxes have dens and birds of the, of the sky have nests and the son of man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first, let me go bury my father. But he told him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, to what, what they were saying is, I, I, I will follow you, Jesus, but there's some things that will be first. Some things are going to come first, Jesus. My job's going to come first. My goal's will come first. My recreation will come first. My family will come first. My pleasures will come first. And how did Jesus feel about that? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is what? Is fit for the kingdom. He says like, hey, if I don't, if I'm not first, you're not ready. You're not ready for this. Again, he's not trying to turn people off. He's trying to help them understand, help us understand what he's calling us to. In Luke 14, verse 25, again, we want to slow down, not so fast on this stuff. Most of us, this is not new to us. It's not new to me. Now, great crowds were traveling with him. Great crowds sounds like a good thing. Lots of people sounds like success. So he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Not so fast. You see, like he says, cannot two times. If we don't hate our family, father, da, da, and even our own life, we cannot be his disciple. If we don't bear our cross, if we don't live a, a life of self-denial and self-sacrifice, I mean, what does he say? He says, we can't. You can't be my disciple. You can't be my disciple living for you and living for me. It doesn't work. And, and this week as I read over those words that Jesus said in Luke 14, I kind of noticed that those words about following Jesus are sandwiched between a couple of parables and, and, and a pretty powerful closing statement. And the parable that Jesus gives before he says these words is a parable about people making excuses. Excuses. You ever do that? You ever make excuses? You ever make excuses about, even about following Jesus? about serving in his church? Well, in this parable, a rich guy is giving a great banquet, and he sends out his servant to tell the people, right, who are waiting on this banquet to happen, come, for everything is now ready. 
But they all began to make what? Say it. Excuses. And the excuses were pretty lame. One guy goes, hey, I bought a field. I got to go look at it. Like, you didn't, you bought it without looking at it? Hey, I, I bought five yoke of oxen. I got to try them out. I bought a brand new car. I think I ought to drive it. One guy just said, hey, I just got married. I can't come. <laughs> and, and how do you think the master felt about their excuses? Look what he says. Then the owner of the house became angry. And he ordered a servant to go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then a master told a servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. And he says this, I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. And so that's the parable he gives before his teaching on fall on him. And the parable he gives after it is about the importance of counting the cost, right? If you're going to build a tower, you ought to count the cost. If, if, you're, going to, if you're going to go to war, you should count the cost. And, and listen, I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit had, had Luke sandwiched that teaching of Jesus with those two parables for, for a very good reason. I understand because God the Son put on flesh because he lived a perfect life, because he died a cruel substitutionary death, because he rose from the dead, because he's seated at the right hand of God, everything is now ready. Everything is now ready for us to enjoy the great banquet of following Jesus and experiencing the abundant life that is a byproduct of being a fully devoted follower. Everything's ready. Salvation is ready. The Holy Spirit is waiting to enter you and live inside of you. Yet some people continue to make excuses of why they cannot come to the banquet. And why they're not able to follow Jesus in the way that Jesus requires. Make excuses. Because of this, it's pretty tragic. They will never taste they will never experience the inexpressible and glorious joy of what it's really like to follow after and live in the presence of the Son of God. Not so fast. I don't know about you. I want to taste it. <laughs> I want to taste it. I want to taste more of it and more of it and more of it and more of it. What it is to follow after him. And the second parable about not counting the cost is just reminding us that sometimes we don't count the cost and sometimes we're unwilling to pay the cost. And check out how Jesus ends this discussion right after the parable about counting the cost. He says this, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple, right? That, you know, there's no seven trumpets Seven seals, right? That's, he's been real clear, right? Those of you who do not give up everything you have, hope none of us are those of you, cannot be my disciple. And then he gives this analogy as he begins to wrap up this discussion. He says, salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Remember, context is king, right? The context has been about following him. 
Salt is good. Being a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, is good. Is very good. But the salt loses its saltiness. If we're not following after Jesus in the way that he requires, we're no longer what? Not just, we're not even fit for the soil or the manure pile. And then he concludes with this. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Not so fast. Understand that there wasn't a major deformity going around in that culture where in that crowd there were some people missing their ears, right? And they just didn't have ears. That's not what's going on. What he's talking about, you know, that, that those who are willing to hear what I'm teaching you will hear it. And I wonder, do we have ears to hear, right? I mean, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Whoever's willing to hear, you know, and, it, it, and let's be honest, it's not that comfortable, right? It's not a comfortable call to follow Jesus. It's worth it, right? Whoever has ears to hear in this room today, let them hear that this is what Jesus requires. There, there's, there's it. There, there's nothing else. You see, as one of my, one author I love writes, following Jesus is an all or nothing deal. There's no such thing as partial surrender. In order to follow him, we must completely lay down our lives. We do not get to pick and choose what we hold on to and what we give up. Total surrender is the only option. Take a moment to examine your life. Who is in charge? Who's in charge of your time? Who's in charge of your talent? Who's in charge of your, dare I say, who's in charge? Who's the director of your life? Who's calling the shots? Is it you or Jesus? Can't be both. If you answer both you and Jesus and total surrender has not occurred, Jesus will not stand for it. He'll not share his throne. Call him selfish if you like, but that's just the way it is. Jesus desires you and he's not willing to share you with anyone else, including yourself. Total surrender is an outlandish extreme that justifiably produces discomfort in most. Anybody, anybody uncomfortable? It makes me uncomfortable. We may believe or accept the concept on a cognitive level. Hey, I get it. I surrender all. I sang that song before. <laughs> One of my favorites. But in our hearts, right, most of us are holding on to hope that there will be what? A little wiggle room. Yeah, I know he said it. I know he said it. I know I, that's what I would say in Sunday school. But come on. There's got to be a little wiggle room. We may desire the appearance of surrender, but we clearly know who's in control. This is not one of those fuzzy, hard to interpret theological ideals. It's clear cut. Total surrender and nothing less is required. Nowhere in Scripture do we see Jesus breaking off of this, backing off of this. Jesus wants all of you. He wants your hopes, dreams, goals, plans, agendas, lifestyles, families, relationships, jobs, service, hobbies, gifts, talents, money, abilities, passions. The list goes on. He purchased you and the price was significant. 
Jesus is not negotiating this deal with you. His final offer is on the table. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And what I'm trying to say in this not-so-fast message is that following after Jesus is a really, really big deal with a really, really big cost. But listen, it is so worth that cost. Right? I mean, if it wasn't worth it, why bother? Right? And why is Jesus worth it? Why is follow Jesus worth it? Because no one is who he is. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the mighty God. He is the creator and sustainer of all that we see. Jesus is all-powerful, all-knowing, and always there. He always has been, and he always will be. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. Jesus is huge. Jesus is holy. Jesus is mighty. Jesus is everlasting. Jesus is God. And why is it worth it? Because no one has done what he has done. What has Jesus done? Jesus has cleaned up our past. He, he has paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. He, he has removed from us the oncoming wrath of God. And he's guaranteed our future in heaven by defeating death, sin, and the grave. Why is it worth it? Because no one can do what Jesus can do. And he can do anything. Nothing's too hard for him. Jesus can deliver what he promised. He can bring peace to any conflict. He can conquer any problem. He can calm any storm. He can slay any giant. He can defeat any enemy. He can move any mountain. He can part any sea. He can restore what is broken. He can bring life to what is dead. He can free any captive. And no mission can accomplish what Jesus' mission accomplishes. Understand, those who follow Jesus... They change lives. They change hearts. They change homes. They change marriages. And they redirect the forevers of lost men and women. They give hope to the hopeless. They give belonging to the lonely. They give freedom to the captive. They give meaning to the searching. They give family to the orphan. They give love to the unloved. They give food to the hungry. Those who chase after Jesus, follow Jesus, they change. They have been, and they change the world. They're the light of the world. And why is it worth it? Because Jesus said it's worth it. Again, he said this, truly I tell you, in other words, he's telling the truth, no one who's left home, brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. It's like, not so fast, right? It's like, is he, is he telling the truth? Like, like if he's telling the truth, that, that seems like a good deal to me. Right? If he's telling the truth, what he's telling me is that, that you know, I give one dollar, I get a hundred back, right? I lose one thing, I get a hundred, right? That, that, 
that seems like a good deal, right? Yeah, there's some persecution. That still seems like a good deal because the final chapter is eternal life in heaven, right? He said, you follow me? You got the promise of heaven in this incredible world, right? You get to live there forever in my presence. You'll see the glory of God. You'll walk those streets of gold. Then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to follow me, you must turn away from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. The late 1800s saw an explosion of the gospel in India. I mean, entire provinces closed to the gospel were swept up by a missionary movement that is perhaps unparalleled in history. Wells, in particular, sent hundreds of missionaries to northern India, and they were joined by Indian evangelists as well as missionaries from England and Australia and the United States. And it, this movement was remarkable for a couple of reasons. Number one, because it's mostly led by uh, Indian missionaries themselves. And second, the endeavor focused on northern India, uh, which was firmly in the grasp of the most oppressive forms of Hinduism, is a place where the caste system was really strong and where the headhunters ruled. Understand, uh, these provinces often prided themselves of the hostile reaction they gave to outsiders. And dozens and dozens and dozens of missionaries were killed. Uh, but despite the opposition and violence, or perhaps because of it, the gospel made inroads into this previously off-limits area. In the 1980s, I mean 1880s, a Welsh missionary who endured a lot of persecution finally saw his very first convert in a particularly brutal village. A husband and wife with their two children professed faith in Jesus and were baptized. Their village leaders decided to make an example out of the husband. Uh, arresting the family, they demanded that the father renounce Christ or see his wife and children murdered. When he refused, his two children were shot by archers. Given another chance to recount his faith in, in, in Christ, he refused, and his wife was murdered. Still refusing to recant, he lost his life as well. And, and witnesses later told the Welsh missionary, those that were there, they, they, they said that when asked to recount or see his children murdered, the man said, I have decided to follow Jesus, and there is no turning back. And seeing his children killed, he reportedly said, the world can be behind me, but the cross is still before me. And after seeing his wife pierced by arrows, he said, though none, no one is here to go with me, still I will follow Jesus. And according to the Welsh missionary, when he returned, a great revival broke out, and even those who had murdered this family came to faith in the Lord. And the account of this family's being martyred just spread widely throughout India, and eventually... Uh, his final words were, were put into a song, a song that we probably know. I have decided it to follow Jesus. And uh, eventually that song made his way to America. We're going to sing that song leading into our time of communion, where we remember the fact that Jesus broke his body for us and that he shed his blood for us and that he's coming back again. We do our communion off to the sides. 
Uh, we're going to sing that song, but not so fast. Not so fast. I want, I think God wants us to sing the song from here, not just from here. Because this is a pretty serious song. And you've already heard what Jesus said to me is to follow him. And, and I've never said anything like this before, but maybe some in here shouldn't sing it. Maybe you shouldn't sing, I've decided to follow Jesus, if you really haven't. And maybe you should just pray, you know. And maybe you're here today and, and, you know, you've never surrendered to Christ in faith and in baptism, right? Maybe you do that today. Say, you know what, I want to follow him. I see the cost. I see it costs a lot, but my goodness, the, uh, the rewards are, are, are incredible. You know, maybe you're here like me and you're like, you know what, my following has been like a roller coaster ride at times. It's been like a wave of the sea, right? Sometimes hot, sometimes cold, sometimes lukewarm. And maybe you're like, hey, you know what? Jesus, I see what you want, and you certainly went all the way for me. And maybe you make this time, you know what? I'm drawing a line in the sand today, July 21st, 2019, and I have decided to follow Jesus again in the right way. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And I know the enemy is going to throw something at me the minute I walk out of these doors, but no turning back, no turning back. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing the song. And again, when we take communion to Maple Grove, we do it every week. It's off to the sides. You'll find a, a tray with uh, two cups. In the top cup, you'll find um, the juice. The bottom cup is the bread, which represents his body, which was broken for you. The cup, his blood that was shed for you, and remember him during that time. And that's where we also collect our offerings. If you guys would stand, I'm going to pray. Uh, Jesus, uh, wow, not so fast. And we're ready to just jump in. Let's sing this closing song, take communion, walk out the door, have lunch, and get on with our day. But not so fast. Uh, Father, I, I pray that each of us, and that certainly includes me, When I sing this song, if I don't mean it, when I sing this song without realizing there's a cost, but we'll sing this song that knowing that you are worthy of all things. And Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would just move and convict us. Father, we see in the Bible what a, a group of people 120 people meeting in an upper room that were devoted to these things changed the world and impacted billions of lives. God, I pray we all desire and want to follow you. Holy Spirit, just help us examine our own hearts. I pray that we have ears to hear. Amen.